this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And also the podcast that is celebrating its fourth anniversary. Yes. Who knew? Four years ago. It's been a long four years. It definitely. A very long four years. Yeah. Yeah. But we're still... Rocking and rolling. And speaking of that, I just need to vent about something I just read that stuck in my craw. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I just like that phrase. Usually things don't bother you, so I'm very excited about hearing. I was reading People magazine. There's one with uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the cover. And there's a sidebar about Kamala, about, you know, the fact that she's, uh, you know, the first woman black uh, <laughs> black and indian so they're talking about her husband doug emhoff uh, this is a quote a 56 year old lawyer soon to take on the awkward title of america's first second gentleman awkward now, why is it awkward why yeah why is that awkward and why? why why would you say just because so i guess it's not manly yeah, it annoyed me. And I'm, I'm just and saying. I'm saying that in quotes. Yes, you know, I, I understand why. Yeah, you're why is it. it awkward? Like uh, even if stupid Sarah Palin had been McCain had been elected, and they said that about her stupid husband, I would have said the same thing. Why is right. it awkward? Right, because you're be. saying it's awkward. It shouldn't be because he's a man. Right. Anyways, that, that's just something that annoyed me. And now if what, you hear noises, it's because somebody has decided she wants to be. Right next to the microphone. Mom? Mom? No. Kamala Harris? <laughs> I wish. Yeah, Kamala's here for moral support. My you, little you, kitten. Here. Okay. I'm Let's. getting her out of the way. Okay. It's good to know. I have a brief peeve to discuss uh, as well. You never have peeves. It, it, okay. do, it doesn't really carry the weight of yours, but it's just something I want to discuss. Okay. That, Never Lay mind. it on me. Never mind. Never mind. Why? Because it, it's too it's too hard to explain. It's too it personal. Stuff. No, it's not personal at all. It has to do. Okay, okay. I'll I'll say it just oh, so people Jesus don't wonder. Christ. Okay. Well, you could have just you could have just edited the whole part out. And maybe, I okay. <laughs> maybe I will. Maybe I will. So what? And, and maybe it's because I'm a writer, a mystery writer. And always yeah. have to, and always have to think of different scenarios and red herrings. But when I'm listening to a true crime podcast, not one necessarily like ours where we're telling a story, but one of those more investigative type ones where there's some quote unquote clue and they're like, Well, it's obviously this. It has to be this. And lots of times when they say that, I can think of lots of other things that could be. And it always kind of mm-hmm. bugs me. And sometimes I think, okay, it's because this is episode like two of ten episodes and they already know what it is. And so they're yeah. not going to go into all the possibilities. But I'll give an example from a podcast I was listening to the other day. This woman who had been hitchhiking in the wee hours of the morning on like a 20 below zero night in Colorado mm-hmm. in a snowstorm mm-hmm. was yeah, yeah kill, right, killed. And by her body, they found a sock that didn't belong to her. And another woman, it turned out, had been killed, and the sock belonged to her. And Hmm. so they're like, obviously, the killer left it here as either on purpose or by accident. But obviously, the killer left it there. And I'm like, well, I can think of a scenario where maybe he had the first woman in the car. Oh, the, the, the woman... 
whose the sock belonged to was found dead after. So where he had one woman in the car, which would make the other woman more likely to get into the car, then maybe somehow the second woman took the sock in, in a desperate, you know, to leave a clue for people. You know what I mean? Yes. To help yes, them exactly. figure things out. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's the scenario that immediately came to my mind. When or it they, could be that when they dragged her body out of the car, the sock fell out. Right. Or something. Right. It could, there could be a lot. Well, it was uh, yeah. way down. Right. There could, there's a lot of things. So when they say, well, it's obviously, it obviously has to be either this thing or that thing. And neither of them are things that, of the dozen things that came to my mind. So that happens a lot. And it's something that bothers me. I just thought I'd get it off my I'm chest. I'm sorry. Thank you for, for understanding. Do we need to, like, acknowledge our anniversary anymore? <laughs> or do you think we've we've I don't know. done enough of that? We appreciate people who have stuck... There isn't much to acknowledge. So, well, I think it's a milestone, don't you? We're going to be... Uh, well, we're we're uh, going to yes. be around a lot saying, longer yes, than the other person yes. who, who started doing something in November of 2016. We'll still be here after January 20th. That's right. So we have... this. Is this our 88th? 89th. We have about an average of about 22 episodes a year, which is a little less uh, every two weeks. But I mean, that's not well, it's really right, not as bad we as started, I thought. Right. We started out doing it weekly and then we had, hit a bad patch. Did we ever do it weekly? Or when did we, we first started. Two, oh, we when, did? When we first started it, we were week when I was unemployed. Yeah. yeah. And then we started doing it every two weeks when we started doing Groovy Tube, I think. And then it, we did take a summer hiatus one year for a month or two. And then over this summer, we we went through a few months, or the, not summer, but spring, where we were doing it once a month. And that just mm. wasn't working for our listeners or us. And so yeah. now we're we're on a good schedule and we're back to We've been weeks. going it, yeah. We have to get we'll try to get back to Groovy Tube sometime, but Yeah. But okay. so anyway, I don't have any updates and you don't have any updates. No. So why don't we launch right into your story? Oh, I'm so excited. I am too. On Tuesday, October 12th, 1937, the sound of machine guns exploded in the quiet late morning streets of downtown Bangor, Maine for the first time and I know the what last. it is. That's, I can name that tune. Would you please wait? Okay. You need to wait. Okay. I'm not, I wasn't going to say, I just wanted you to know. That, yeah, you know. but you're wrong. Federal okay. officers had cornered the Brady gang, three men led by Alfred Brady, who was at the time public enemy number one and had crowed that he would quote, make John Dillinger look like a piker. Which I don't, I don't really know what a piker is, but it's it's just a loser. As the Bangor Daily News reported in its evening edition that day, Alfred Brady and one of his gang, Clarence Lee Shaver Jr., were quote almost literally torn to pieces in the rain of lead from government guns. The third gang member, James Dalliver, escaped serious injury and was taken into custody. Alfred Brady from Indiana and his small group had carried out over 200 robberies, stealing over $100,000 worth of gems and four robberies in Ohio alone. They'd killed at least four people, including an Indiana state trooper the previous May. They'd robbed other gangs and committed numerous assaults. But my story is not about them. Although I will probably do a story about them in the future, maybe a main mini. The shootout in Bangor left police on, nation, on nationwide alert that members of the Brady gang may still be at large. 
So, early on Saturday morning, October 16th, when police in North Arlington, New Jersey, saw a new Buick sedan with main plates parked in an empty lot, I know they what approached it is. the car with caution. They saw feet up against the windshield and found 18-year-old Paul Dwyer sleeping in the driver's seat. You do? Why did you look at no, newspapers.com? No, 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 I don't. No, I don't. I thought it was. I thought it was going to be Judge Crater. Oh, Judge Crater. He's from New York. Because we had talked about I famous know. missing people. That's an interesting one. By the way, I used numerous resources: original articles from the Passaic New Jersey Herald News, the Boston Globe, the Bangor Daily News, the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and many other newspapers stories that were published at the time of these events. Thanks to newspapers.com 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 is like a hole that you cannot it's very hard to extricate yourself from yes. and it causes you to have way too much research yeah but it's good it's good research beats the shit out of google i know it's really it's really you get sucked in anyway the police questioned the young man and thought he was acting sketchy they searched him and found $197 in cash in his pockets, which is worth about $3,564 oh. today. Even today, I mean, having that much cash in your pockets is a little. I would love having that much cash in my pockets. And he didn't have a good explanation for where he got the cash. They asked him to come down to the station for a talk. One article I read said the cops were suspicious because when they pulled up, they saw the bottom of Paul's shoes were worn out and he had a hole in the sole of his shoe. And that didn't jibe with the brand new Buick with doctor's plates. I didn't read that anywhere else. And it just seems like some embellishment that yes. 1930s. No, I'm not trying to like diss the, the newspapers oh. at the time, but... As we talked about the newspapers in the 1930s in the Mad Sculptor episode, which I don't know the number of, there's a couple of them that, you know, you, right. you got to take what they say with a grain right. of salt. And they do like to put half-naked women or women in bathing suits in their newspapers, which I'll talk about later. Yeah. Paul drove his car to police headquarters as instructed. While Paul was inside being interviewed by Officer Michael Keene, Patrolman Norman Turner went outside to, to search the car. He was shocked to discover the body of a woman on the floor of the back seat. He went back inside to report what he'd found. Paul reportedly said, open up the back of the car and you'll find a man in there. I killed him too. Huh. That, that was according to the Passaic Herald News. According to the Boston Globe, the patrolman who searched the car was Louis Halfold. When he ran back inside to the booking desk to report finding Mrs. Littlefield, Paul Dwyer said, I didn't kill them. And this is a quote from the Boston Globe article. Them, the booking officer blinked. What do you mean them? There's a dead man in the trunk and back, said Dwyer. Patrolman Keene and Coffold lifted the lid of the trunk compartment and the body of Dr. Littlefield crammed into the trunk compartment fell out. The second account sounds more legitimate to me. Yeah, I know. Paul told the... And also, later you'll see at the trial... It, Ooh, uh, spoiler. Lewis Hoffold is one of the witnesses. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Paul told the police that the dead man was Dr. James Littlefield and the woman was his wife, Lydia, who in earlier newspaper reporting was called Gertrude. Hmm. Very confusing, but not surprising. Back then, it was almost impossible to know wives' first names. I mean, uh, believe yes. me, I had to look through. There was another person. Because they're always called like Mrs. Mrs. James Littlefield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Several newspapers published Paul Dwyer's statement to the police. So I'll just read his statement because it tells the story pretty well. This one is from the Boston Globe, but I saw it in a few other papers like the Patterson, New Jersey News, and there are a couple other papers that carried it. So it must have been released by the police department. Okay, now I've got to get in. I've got to channel Paul Dwyer. <laughs> My name is Paul Nathaniel Dwyer. My residence was Paris Hill, Maine. I was born in Newton, Massachusetts on July 22, 1919. I am now 18 years old. Dr. Littlefield came up to the house this past Wednesday evening and was going to treat me. After he got through, we were talking and he mentioned something about an old friend of mine he said was pregnant. I hit the doctor with my fist. We were in the bathroom. He fell against the bathtub his head hitting the bathtub. He got up and started to fight, and I strangled him with both hands. I held him for quite a while, for about five minutes. He did not fight back. I went downstairs and packed some things of mine. I decided to take him with me. When I went back upstairs, I found he was coming to, so I put a belt of mine around his neck and choked him. I hit him with the hammer after choking him with the belt. I must have struck him two or three times. I carried the body downstairs. How did you carry the body, he was asked. I put one arm under his legs and one under about his shoulders and carried him downstairs. I brought his car from the front of the house to the back side. I carried him out to the back of the car, put him in the back, and locked the car. I went back into the house to see that all the lights were shut off, and then I closed the house. I left for South Paris in his car. The residence of the doctor is in South Paris. I didn't know what was go I was going to do or where to go, so I went, after driving around for a while, to Mrs. Littlefield's residence and arrived about 9 p.m. I went inside the house and told her the doctor and I had run over two men and supposedly killed them. I told her that the doctor lost his head and had me take him to Lewiston to catch a train for Boston. I said that we were to meet the doctor in Boston. Mrs. Littlefield got dressed and went down to the car with me, and we started for Boston. We arrived in Boston late. I went in a telephone booth in Boston and called an imaginary number, which was supposed to be the doctor's. This was Thursday morning about 1 a.m. I came out and told Mrs. Littlefield that the doctor had gone to Concord, New Hampshire, so we went there. We <laughs> loaded up with gas at a station outside of Boston. After arriving in Concord, we stopped at the Hotel Eagle and registered in the names of Mrs. Littlefield and Philip Davis. The doctor's body was in the trunk. There we waited until late Thursday for the doctor to arrive, which of course he didn't. What did you do in Concord while you were in town, the prosecutor asked. Well, after arriving about 4.30 or 5, we registered for rooms. I had room 75 and Mrs. Littlefield had room 76 and slept for a couple of hours. We went downstairs in the hotel about 8 a.m. and had breakfast. I ate some cereal, a cup of coffee, and orange juice. Mrs. L. had some bacon and eggs and coffee. Mrs. Littlefield paid for the meal. What was the topic of conversation at the table? When do you think the doctor will arrive? After breakfast, we went back to our rooms. We checked out about 9 a.m. We went to the railroad station on and off all day. We rode about back and forth several times from Manchester to Concord, and we went to the station to see if he had arrived. Naturally, he didn't. Mrs. Littlefield thought we should go back to Paris. We decided to leave Concord that evening, and we left about 8 p.m. Thursday, October 14th. I got gas at a station in Concord. We went back through Boston, stopped in one of the restaurants in Boston, but did not eat. We went from Boston to Portland. That is a roundabout way. I know. That's what I thought, too, To when go I read from it. Concord to Paris, Maine, you, don't, you just have to drive across. I know. I know. I thought but that anyway. was weird, too. Even back then, because the routes are the same. 
I mean, right. there wasn't a major highway like 95 and anyway, actually, so you would right. just go straight Now across. Nowadays, people do go down yeah, they would and go over down. because of 95, but back then you would just I go I don't know across. why he did I don't, yeah. he, and he doesn't explain what. I don't know why he did any of this, but anyway. Well, you'll, well, okay. it will come more clear later. Ah. I decided to take Mrs. Littlefield home and take the body to Oxford County Courthouse and confess. But while on the way up from Portland to South Paris, we stopped to rest. I had to rest my eyes. While we parked, we began talking about the doctor. I was so tired not having slept since Tuesday evening that I apparently let something slip. Mm. She began to question me closely. I guess I did not give very sensible answers because she asked me outright what I had done to the doctor. I tried to stall her off and was just going to tell her about the doctor when she accused me of killing him. She said she knew it and was going to go up to the road and get somebody to straighten this out. Then we began to argue. I tried to talk her out of it. She started to get out of the car to get help. I didn't let her get out. She began to fight and tried to blow the horn. There wasn't much traffic at that time of the morning, about 6 a.m. It was just beginning to get light. I choked her, grabbed her by the throat, and held on. I did not hit her. I held on to her throat until she stopped moving. After that, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't very well go back to Paris, so I put her on the floor in the back, piled the blankets and suitcases on her to cover her up. Her pocketbook was still in the front seat. I opened it at the scene of the second crime and saw there was about $250 in the pocketbook. I took the money out. I figured that was enough to give me a start. I decided that I'd leave for anywhere. I left the scene of the crime about 7.30 a.m. I drove back to Boston, then through Worcester, Hartford, New Haven, and New York City, arriving in New York about 7 or 8 p.m. After leaving Boston, I didn't care how fast I drove, and I didn't care if I got caught. After arriving in New York City, I tried to find Riverside Drive. I finally did and drove down it. I spent two or three hours riding all around New York City. By that time, I wanted to go to the police station, but I couldn't get up the courage, so I did everything to get stopped. I rode through several red lights, but the officers warned me to be more careful, thinking that I was not familiar with the city traffic after seeing the main license. None of them asked me for my license. They wouldn't pinch me, and I didn't have the courage to say anything. From there, I went down the Holland Tunnel and thence into New Jersey. I asked directions. I had intended to go to Baltimore. I tried to find Newark. By that time, not having slept since Tuesday night, I couldn't see to drive. I went off the road two or three times and hit the curbing. I started to fall asleep. I picked the first stop I could find. It was off the main road in North Arlington behind a gas station. This was about 5 a.m., I hadn't been there 15 or 20 minutes when the officers awakened me about 5.20 a.m. They were apparently suspicious of the main car parked like that in connection with the recent Brady case in Bangor, Maine. When they asked me for licenses, I could not satisfy them with the correct registration. So they asked me to go to the station and try to identify myself. I was not beaten or ill-treated, and I think if all officers went at things in the way Officer Keene did, they would get much further than trying to get hard. Where did you take the money off the doctor's body? I went through his pockets after I strangled Mrs. Littlefield right at the same spot I killed Mrs. Littlefield. How much was there? About $24. How much did you spend? Not over $10, only for gas, no eats. Now... Obviously, this story is not written by Paul. It's a story he told the police that was written by one of them, as you can tell by kind of by the language. Yeah. Most likely Officer Keene, since he says how great he is at the end. <laughs> I, know. I think that, that obviously they asked him where he was and they asked him details about like, what do you eat and stuff so they could 
corroborate his story. So meanwhile in Maine, the police searched Paul Dwyer's house on Paris Hill, where he'd been living alone. The bathroom had blood on the tub, walls, wainscoting, sink, everywhere. Part of the doctor's false teeth were found under the tub, which, remember, this was 83 years ago, and that was a clawfoot tub. It was an mm-hmm. old house anyway. Paris Hill is a very nice area of Paris, Maine, and it is basically you drive up onto on the hill, and there's a bunch of, uh, there's like an old jail. It's a really nice place, but yeah, there's a cool. lot of old houses. Police postulated that Paul had killed Dr. Littlefield in the bathroom, then carried his body through a bedroom, down the stairs, down a hallway, through another room, into the kitchen and out the back door to put in the car. But they didn't explain how Paul got the body into the trunk of the car. It was also speculated that Paul had to have carried the body rather than dragged it due to the lack of blood along the way and the condition of Dr. Littlefield's body. Put a pin in this fact because it will be relevant later. Dr. Ralph Gillardi of Bergen County, New Jersey performed the autopsies. Both victims had been hit in the head with a hammer after being strangled. There was a small ball-peen hammer in the car with a chip ball from the force of striking the skulls of James and Gertrude. The Boston Globe describes Paul Dwyer's house as large, yellow, two-and-a-half-story buildings standing high on Paris Hill with a couple of elm trees in the front yard. Neighbors told police they saw lights on late in the night on the night of the murder. The police searching the house found a half-eaten meal of an omelet and a chop. Pork chop? Lamb chop? I don't know. They didn't mm. say they just said a chop. And propped up by the plate was a magazine, Ace G-Men Stories. Other types of, of those magazines littered the room. The type was stories about detectives, criminals, gangsters, etc. Cumberland County Sheriff Henry E. Burnell said in the Bangor Daily News, apparently the boy had read his share of dime novels. Paul's yes. widowed, mo- widowed mother, Jessie, a nurse, was away working at Hebron Tuberculosis Sanitarium. Hebron is about eight miles from Paris Hill. She had just started her job in the sanitarium a few days prior and apparently had to live there to work there. When told of Paul's arrest, she said, according to the Boston Globe, I don't believe it. I don't think it's true. I'll have to get in touch with somebody. I'll have to see a lawyer. No shit. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Dwyer had attended schools in South Paris and Hebron Academy. He was well-liked, but his teachers described him as a slacker and a lackluster student. Dr. D.W. Stewart was Dr. Littlefield's next-door neighbor and was acquainted with Paul Dwyer also, having worked with his mother, Jessie, the nurse. He told Boston Globe that Paul had recently returned from a fruitless job-hunting visit to New York and was depressed. Dr. Stewart described Paul as having, quote, big ideas who liked to impress his many friends of both sexes. He said Paul was always looking for easy money. Mm. Paul Dwyer had worked at summer camps and doing odd jobs, never making much money. Some of the news accounts called him a chauffeur, but I think that was stretching it. I mean, he did work as a chauffeur, but it wasn't like... Right. They like to call... They, they want to uh, grab onto something. Yeah, they, they always call them by some, some kind of job. Dr. Littlefield had gone to college at Bowdoin and received a medical degree. He practiced his whole career around the Paris-Norway area. paris Maine and Norway, Maine. Yes. <laughs> he and Lydia had been married since 1900. She was also from Norway, Maine. Lydia's sister, Maddie Cummings, who lived in Norway, had stopped by the day before her sister's body was found at the Littlefields' house. She found the, the door locked and the car gone and assumed that her sister and her husband had gone to a medical convention. 
Paul was arraigned in New Jersey, and both Cumberland County and Oxford County sheriffs, Henry Burnell and Fernando Francis, as well as a Maine State Trooper, who they didn't name, flew to New Jersey on a chartered plane to pick him up and bring him back to Maine to face the music. The Boston Globe reporter wrote that Paul Dwyer didn't look like a killer. He is more like a spoiled, in this afternoon, a very scared kid, a boy whose eyes are weak, red, and watery from lack of sleep and crying. He has a thin, pimply face with fuzzy down on his cheeks, <laughs> dressed in brown, wrinkled and baggy trousers, the dirty white sweater, and a shirt with no necktie and a collar open at the throat. He sat in the chair in the prosecutor's office this afternoon as I talked with him, his arms folded, looking up, blinking at questions. So this was a reporter that liked to insert himself into the yes. stories. By Monday, Paul was back in Maine via, quote, motor flight, as the Bangor Daily News reported. Mm. He, well, remember, it was 1937. He was arraigned in Norway, Maine, and Oxford County, on the charge of murdering the doctor, and in Portland, Maine, Cumberland County, on the charge of killing Lydia, who, according to Paul, was killed in New Gloucester, so it was Cumberland County. The Cumberland County prosecutor, Albert Nudson, took Paul on a drive so Paul could show him the spot where Lydia was killed. There is the place. I can identify it by a bag of bananas we left there, <laughs> Paul told the police who were with him on the drive. Sure enough, a bag of bananas lay in the grass on the side of the highway. Oh. Paul confessed to prosecutor Nudson, giving a similar story to the one he gave North Arlington police. According to North Arlington Police Chief George Shippey, Paul had told Mrs. Littlefield that her husband had killed two people with a car and that she should get as much cash together as possible to meet him in Boston. She fell for it, is what Paul told police, according to Chief Shippey. Sheriff Francis of Oxford County told the Bangor Daily News that he was, quote, not particularly satisfied with the motive Paul gave for killing the doctor. According to police Chief Shippey, Paul said, Dr. Littlefield, quote, made a dirty crack about a girl I was going with. Sheriff Francis said, quote, but Dwyer hadn't seen this girl for more than a year. The doctor probably had simply told him something he had heard about the girl. The boy went around with a dozen girls and letters from several were found in his pocket. Hmm. Prosecutor Nudson told the Bangor Daily News, I asked him if any girl had told him or if he knew any girl he had been going around with was pregnant, and Dwyer answered negatively. Paul's mom, Jessie Dwyer, had pretty much disowned Paul, according to her her lawyer. While he had no police record prior to his arrest, the Bangor Daily News reported he was unruly. In an article written on Monday, October 18th, the Bangor Daily News wrote, at the sheriff's office at the county jail, young Dwyer first showed his resentment at photographers. Haven't you had enough, he said, biting his lips before he was led away to a cell. But he posed nonetheless and was not adverse to striking another pose in his cell at the behest of newsmen. Do you like the way they write back then? I do. I, and I like the way they're constantly just zinging him, you know. But they also, I notice, and I didn't put most of these in my quotes, but no matter who the person is, they have to call them like auburn-haired or the silver-haired judge mm. that... And, they're always, like, describing people. Because there were fewer visuals back then. Newspapers shed more light on Paul's story in a day or two after his arrest. He had called Dr. Littlefield because he was concerned he had contracted a venereal disease. Dr. Littlefield apparently made a remark about the company Paul kept, which enraged the young man. The judge who was set to arraign Paul was Judge Harry Shaw, a Norway municipal judge. He was a close friend of Dr. Littlefield and a golf buddy. Paul Dwyer had been the judge's caddy many times. 
At his Oxford County arraignment, Paul Dwyer pleaded not guilty and was held without bail. His court-appointed lawyer, E. Walker Abbott, said Paul was going to plead insanity at trial. Oh, and Paul changed his story about the motive for his murders. Hmm. He was now claiming the motive was robbery. But even in the days before in an interview with the Associated Press, Paul said, I had trouble with him over a girl. I guess they're going to say robbery was why I did it, but that's not so. I certainly didn't have any reason for robbing him. If I did, I would have left the bodies somewhere and kept on going. But as the bodies of the Littlefields were being prepared for their funerals, Paul signed a new confession, according to State Trooper Ralph Price and Sheriff Fernando Francis. Quote, I killed Dr. Littlefield because I needed money. I merely intended to hold him up. I became panic-stricken and did the rest as in the previous confession. The girl angle was a big mistake and was started over some letters found in my suitcase in New Jersey. It's all over now, and there's nothing that can be done about it. If I hadn't given myself up, I would have been nervous. This would have been on my mind the rest of my life. As it is, I'm willing to take what's coming to me. About the Littlefields, Paul told the Associated Press, I had no reason to hurt them. I didn't know what I was, what I was doing, I guess. The Littlefields had apparently helped Paul out and had taken him under their wings. From what I could gather, they had no children of their own. And they felt bad for him uh, because his mother was widowed. They liked him. He did a lot of odd jobs and stuff. Before Paul could be arraigned in Portland for Lydia Littlefield's murder, the courts needed permission from a superior court judge. They needed permission because it was a different jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. For some reason, he was already arraigned in Oxford County and something about the way it worked. Unfortunately, Matt's not here to explain. They had to get permission from the superior court judge before they could do the arraignment in Cumberland County. Mm -hmm. The judge was apparently disturbed by Paul's changing stories and decided he needed to go to the state mental hospital in Augusta for an evaluation before the cases moved forward. Give me a break. I think there were other things going on. Well, yeah, because I just want to say about the changing stories, my initial reaction when the girl thing first came up is that as we know people who kill people or are charged with killing people often make the story sound like the person did something to provoke them yes exactly. they didn't necessarily and uh, and also as we know police and i'm sure they were even doing it back then like to put an idea in a person's head to get yes, them to confess well yeah. you'll see you'll yes see I, this, i'm looking forward to it it's a very the Bangor Daily News reported on November 16, 1937, that Paul was ruddy-cheeked and had gained 10 pounds during his three-week stay at the mental hospital. Mm. He was smiling on his return to the Oxford County Jail. He was found sane and ready to stand trial. By the way, it's funny how he's described. He's called slight, good-looking, sallow, pimply. Um, th- there are a lot of photos of him in the papers, and he looks like a just a regular young... He's not a bad-looking young kid, but it's hard to tell from black-and-white photos. On November 30th, only six weeks after his arrest in New Jersey, jury selection began in the South Paris trial of Dr. Littlefield's murder. About half the jurors were farmers, and the others included a steam fitter, a cashier, a millwright, a janitor, or and a bank treasurer. The defense challenged men who were from the South Paris area or who were related to any of the victims or the defendant. And there were women in trials at that time. I don't think any were in the talesmen, which is a word I used, I learned during the Helen Jewett one, but they mentioned it in some of the newspaper articles. So the uh, jury pool. Um, I think all his jury pearl was men, but they mm-hmm. did used to pick women sometimes back then. Over 30 witnesses were named, including the New Jersey police, prosecutors, police photographer, etc., as well as their main counterparts. 
Paul's mother, Jessie, sat next to him during jury selection, but as the trial got underway, Judge George Emery ordered her to sit behind him, saying, no one has the right to confer with him except counsel. Mm. The first witnesses were the New Jersey people, Dr. Gallardi, who examined the bodies, said it appeared the doctor had been killed about 60 hours prior to his body being discovered, and Lydia, or Gertrude, or whatever, had been killed 24 to 30 hours prior. Any talk of Mrs. Littlefield was quashed by the judge since the murder trial was only about the doctor. As a matter of fact, Paul hadn't yet even been indicted for Mrs. Littlefield's killing when he went on trial for her husband's killing. The defense tried to get Dr. Gallardi to say that the murderer would would have had to be really strong since the doctor put up a fight. Gallardi said not necessarily, but Paul Dwyer was a very small, slight, man. He was only maybe 150 pounds. Dr. Littlefield was probably about 180 pounds. Before the trial began on the third day, Thursday, December 2nd, Paul Dwyer had a half-hour conference with his attorney, Peter McDonald and E. Walker Abbott. Then his lawyers told the judge that Paul Dwyer wanted to plead guilty to the murder of Dr. James Littlefield. Behind Paul sat his mother and Reverend James Burns of Hebron, who'd been counseling Jesse. The judge asked Paul if he understood the penalty his guilty plea would incur and if his retraction was, quote, without mental reservation or hope for compromise. Paul nodded and whispered yes. Paul was sentenced to life in prison for his entire natural life, then was escorted back to a jail cell where he burst into tears. He met with his mother and Reverend Burns for a long talk before he was taken to the main state prison in Thomaston. The judge thanked the jury and dismissed the waiting witnesses. The Bangor Daily News reported that there were, quote, several young town girls who dabbed at wet eyes with handkerchiefs <laughs> as sentence was pronounced on the boy they knew. Mm. On August of 1938, the Bangor Daily News published a story or editorial, it's hard to describe, with the headline, <laughs> Dwyer just a screwball to his fellow prisoners. And I'm going to read it because I, I like the way they wrote back then. And not all the facts seem like they're correct, but it's a helpful transition into the next part of the story. I realized after I decided to, so I'm going to channel my 1930s newspaper writer, but pallid, pimply-faced Paul Dwyer <laughs> walked into the state prison at Thomaston several months ago to pay the penalty for one of the most brutal acts in the red-lettered history of American crime. Wow. A, dance, uh, a dance hall devotee with a pronounced weakness for girls, he entered a surprisingly stoic plea of guilty to the slaying of an aged South Paris doctor and his wife. He told authorities he had beaten the pair to death, crammed their bodies into an automobile, and had transported them through six eastern states until he was finally apprehended in New Jersey. His lower lip was trembling and his voice was low as he stood in the commissary of the prison waiting for the garb that would stamp him for the rest of his life as a convict wailing a hopeless road. Prison officials placed him at work in the tailor shop. Here he stood during the day while other convicts debated his crime and came to the decision that he was a kid gone wild, a screwball, a guy who liked the dames too well. 
Dwyer never once portrayed a single trait which would place him apart as the one capable of, of such a crime over all the others. He acted nervous and bewildered and walked the yard alone for days until he became somewhat accustomed to his surroundings. Looking at his thin, delicate physique, convicts, wise in the ways of crime, thought he must have been possessed of demoniacal strength to handle the bodies as though they were babies. The convicts wondered, too, why Dwyer was kept in confinement for such a long period upon his commitment. He was visited daily by officials of the prison, yet no word leaked out as to the nature of the conversations. Like every other convict, Dwyer, in time, fitted into the dreary picture in prison life. He displayed a weakness for cards, yet this was no uncommon weakness in a place where diversions are few. He listened to the radio in his cell at night, walked the floor of the ill-smelling Monte Carlo at recreational periods and generally conducted himself like the rest. Dwyer has been described in various newspaper and magazine stories as a good-looking youth, fascinating to most women, has been termed from time to time as a Beau Brummel, Dance Hall Romeo, Man About Town, and other flattering terms, none of which really fit him. In reality, he is a quite tall youth, slender to a marked degree. His face is very white and marked with pimples, apparently the ravages of some sickness. His features are regular, his nose is turned up, and he might be called cute which would probably account for his appeal to girls. He is meticulously neat. His clothes, even the prison garb, were always clean, and he might have been set down as an ordinary American youth, save for a chin, which has a tendency to recede to a narrow point, which authorities will tell you is indicative of a weak nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dwyer is the counterpart of hundreds of other youths found in every roadside dance hall in the country. His nature has a definite trend towards the irresponsible side, and many people acquainted with the youth blame this quality for his present plight. But despite unfavorable things said of Dwyer up to now, strange happenings are taking place in the hamlet of South Paris at present time, which might clear this youth and add a lurid chapter to the annals of main murders. There is a possibility which might overnight change into a probability that he will soon be cleared of this atrocious crime to which he pleaded guilty. Whatever happens, however, the story of Paul Dwyer will serve as a long-time illustration of how a mere weakling of a boy can suddenly become, in the eyes of his brother men, a fiend incarnate, a merciless killer. So that was the Bangor Daily News. Mm. And yes, things were going on in South Paris. On June 19, 1938, the Bangor Daily News reported that Assistant Attorney General Ralph M. Ingalls was scheduled to appear before a grand jury on Tuesday, June 21st, with evidence that would impl implicate another person in the murder of Dr. Littlefield. No. In, er <laughs> in earlier months, Ralph Ingalls, a former criminal attorney, was named Special Assistant Attorney General in order to investigate and prosecute morals charges against former Deputy Sheriff of Oxford County, Francis Carroll. While Francis Carroll was in jail for, quote, incest, in other words, sexually abusing his teenage daughter, he was also being investigated for the murder of Dr. Littlefield. Francis's bail on the incest charge was $20,000, which he couldn't afford. He was most likely jailed with a high bail so they could keep him there while they convened a grand jury. Paul Dwyer had dated Frances Carroll's daughter, Barbara, years earlier and was still friends with her. Frances had sat in the courtroom near Jesse Dwyer during Paul's trial the previous year. On June 25, 1938, Francis Carroll was indicted for the murder of Dr. James Littlefield. One of the grand jury witnesses was Paul Dwyer. 
Also testifying were Sheriff Fernando Francis, not to be confused with Deputy Sheriff Francis Francis Carroll, and state fingerprinting expert Leon Shepard, and Carroll's wife Ruby and his daughter. Barbara. Ruby Carroll told the Bangor Daily News that she would visit her husband in jail and stand by him during the trial. Quote, I always thought I married a pretty good boy. Hmm. For his part, Sheriff Fernando Francis, which I said not to be confused with Deputy Sheriff Francis Carroll, had always been dubious of Paul Dwyer's ever-changing confessions. I also wonder if Sheriff Francis knew something about Francis Carroll or suspected, and that's one of the reasons he doubted the story at the beginning. Like, yeah. he probably knew the guy was an asshole, and he, I'm sure he knew stuff about him that, that right. led him to believe that there was more to the story. Paul Dwyer's attorney, Peter McDonald, said that he would petition for Paul's release since the state now thought that someone else had committed the crime. As of yet, no one had been tried for Mrs. Littlefield's murder. In any case, the sheriff and other investigators had been visiting Paul Dwyer in prison and talking to him. After the indictment, A.A.G. Ingalls made the statement, the state contends that this boy, Paul Dwyer, possessed letters detrimental to the future of Francis M. Carroll. They were letters written by one of his minor children, so reflecting upon Carroll that their possession by young Dwyer menaced Carroll. When this information passed into the hands of one of the respectable citizens of Paris, Dr. Littlefield, a motive for murder was established. The meeting of Dr. Littlefield, Francis M. Carroll, and Paul Dwyer at the Dwyer home on Paris Hill on that October night resulted in the death of Dr. Littlefield, but the state contends that Francis M. Carroll and not Paul Dwyer killed the aged physician. In other words, Paul had letters from Barbara that spelled out the sexual abuse by her father. He shared them with Dr. Littlefield, who confronted Francis Carroll. On July 11th, the Bangor Daily News reported that Mrs. Carroll had just returned from a 10-day trip to Silver Lake near Rumford with her three daughters. While she and her daughter Barbara had been subpoenaed to testify at trial, when asked if she was going to, she answered, I'd rather not say... She also said that she hadn't been aware that the defense attorney was complaining that her continued absence had caused issues in the defense's preparation for trial. Despite her passive aggressiveness, she told reporters that she still believed in her husband's innocence. Right before the trial, defense attorneys Edward Beauchamp and Clyde Chapman told the press that they were going to call Attorney General Franz Burkett and Special Prosecutor Ralph Ingalls as defense witnesses. And Ralph Ingalls was the prosecutor. He was the prosecutor in that trial. Right. They were going to call him as a defense witness. The trial of Francis Carroll started on August 1st, 1938. The Bangor Daily News reported of the eve of the trial, Carroll, a World War veteran, rested in the jail cell he has occupied since arrest last April, originally on a morals charge involving Barbara, eldest of his five children. The lawyers who will clash tomorrow over choice of jurors from 19 regular and 75 extra talesmen check their preparations in the quiet of homes and offices. Not until the end of the torrid day did Carol receive visitors. Then Barbara, accompanied by her cousin Leonora Carroll, appeared at the jail, followed shortly by the, that prisoner's loyal wife, Ruby, who carried a freshly baked pie. His mother, <laughs> Mrs. Mabel Carroll, and his youngest brother, James. Barbara and her cousin, clad in colorful dirndl dresses, remained but a few minutes, and when they left, Barbara threw her father a kiss and declared, We're all with you, Dad. The others stayed nearly an hour, during which, which Mrs. Carroll's gay laughter could be heard frequently through the steel door separating the cell block from the sheriff's office. Hmm. There were apparently women on juries, like I said, 
but three of the four women were excused, as was a man who said his hay fever would interfere with jury duty. The women just said they didn't think they could handle the proceedings, and they were excused. Because <laughs> back then, you could say it. Especially because right. there was... there was The sex, you know, yeah. The sex thing. Right. The all-male jury for Francis's trial was asked for Paul Dwyer about half farmers, along with a bank manager who was foreman, a carpenter, a trucker, an office manager, etc. They were sequestered in a mansion at Norway Lake where they were to be watched by deputy sheriff. Nice. I was very intrigued by that. I know. Almost like a reality show. Right. While the jury was being picked, Paul Dwyer, the state's star witness, posed for photos in the sheriff's office. Bangor Daily News wrote, quote, in sharp contrast to Carol's grim, intent demeanor in court, Dwyer appeared with a smile that brought flashing dimples to his pallid cheeks. He waved greetings and a hello to those who spoke to him, clad in a natty blue serge suit. He seemed even slimmer than when his guilty plea apparently wrote finny to the murders of the kindly country doctor and his elderly wife. It was hot and humid that day, and there were less than a hundred spectators in the courtroom, mostly women. The judge forbade taking photos and said he would not allow the trial to become, quote, a spectacle, and he would take action against any demonstration or sensationalism. The defense opening statement described the newest version of events. At the time of the murder, Francis Carroll was, sh- was a deputy sheriff. During Paul's trial, Francis threatened, if you don't stick to your original story, I'll shoot your heart out and say you were trying to escape. But five months later, Francis Carroll was in jail on a morals charge, and Paul Dwyer wrote to him, you promised to get me out of the scrape if I kept quiet, but you haven't done so, and I'm going to tell all I know, which he did. Paul wrote a 17-page letter to the warden, Thomaston changing his story. There were parts of the letter in some of the newspapers, but the to- by the time I got into writing, you can find them if you look at newspaper.com. There are just like excerpts from it. There are various accounts of Paul's letter and what happened, so I'm going to try to piece together what I could from all the different accounts. Barbara who was friends with Paul Dwyer and had dated him in the past, but it's unclear if she was his girlfriend at the time of the murder, sought his help because she was pregnant. The two had started dating in the fall of 1935. In the summer of 1936, they became, quote, over-intimate and transgressed the rules of propriety, Mm. as Counselor Ingalls described it. Paul and Barbara had sex, and Paul felt guilty about it. Barbara told him, that is not the first time this occurred to me. I've had these experiences before. Now you can understand why I hate my father. And at the time, she was 15 when she told him Mm. this. The following morning, Barbara wrote Paul a letter confirming her father's repeated sexual assaults. Although the two decided not to be an exclusive couple anymore, they still cared about each other and saw each other occasionally. And Barbara continued to send Paul letters telling him about her father's abuse. In August of 1937, Francis Carroll drove south to pick up his wife, was visiting someone, and took his younger daughter, Betty, who was 13, and her friend Winona Dodge. Paul knew about the trip. At the Norway fairgrounds during the fair, soon afterward, Paul was drunk and saw Francis Carroll and his wife, Ruby. Paul walked up to Francis and said, If you ever do to Betty what you've done to Barbara, and I find out, I'll show the letters to Barbara has written me to Ruby. Sheriff F.F. F. Francis witnessed this conversation. Mm. It said he witnessed it. It didn't say that he heard what they said, though. But I think Francis, uh, Sheriff Francis, had his eye yes. on Deputy Carol. A short time later, Paul got a letter that offered him money for Barbara's letters. He ignored it. He got another letter telling him if he wasn't going to sell the letters, there were other ways for someone to get them. 
A couple days later, Paul walked Barbara home and told her he would never get rid of the letters or give them to anyone. Quote, they are your protection as much as mine. Later that evening, as Paul entered his home, a shot rang out, and Paul saw a black car heading for South Paris. Francis Carroll drove a gray car, and it was not known who tried to shoot Paul. Paul became so worried, he started carrying a gun to and from South Paris. He would hide the gun inside an old, junked truck that was parked behind a gas station in South Paris. The gun disappeared one day, and Paul panicked. It turned out the guy who owned the truck found the gun and took it. Hmm. But Paul, of course, didn't know that. He started carrying a long straight wrench for protection. On October 7th, as Paul walked down the street in Norway, Francis Carroll drove along beside him and told him to get in the car. Francis demanded that Paul give him Barbara's letters again. According to court records, Francis said, Among other things, Barbara is pregnant. I can disgrace your mother and ruin you, but if you produce those letters, I'll take care of the situation myself. Paul didn't believe Francis and told him as much. Francis said, I'll show you. I'll bring Barbara to your house on Paris Hill Tuesday night and have her examined by my own doc. On the night before the murder, Tuesday, October 12th, Paul was eating at a hamburger stand in Norway. He saw Francis Carroll around 6.15 p.m. and Carroll told him that Barbara was out on a date and couldn't come to Paul's house. A witness saw two men talking on, a, on the street corner. On Wednesday evening, the day of the killing, Paul came down from his house on the hill to South Paris. He went to Howard's drugstore and saw Dr. Littlefield there. He went to the doctor's home and told the doctor his grandmother was ill and needed help. Paul waited around about 20 minutes. He walked over and sat on the steps of the Methodist church, which was next door to Dr. Littlefield's house. While Paul was sitting on the steps, Dr. Littlefield backed his car out of his driveway and started driving down the street. Paul chased after the car and flagged it down in front of Howard's drugstore. He got in and told Dr. Littlefield that his grandmother wasn't ill. On the way to Paul's house, Paul told Dr. Littlefield about Francis Carroll, Barbara, the letters, and how Francis was threatening him. When the doctor's car arrived at Paul's house, there was a black sedan with one man in it parked nearby, according to witnesses. The two men, Paul and Dr. Littlefield, entered the house. Right on their heels, Francis Carroll came into Paul's house and said to the doctor, What are you messing in this for, Littlefield? The doctor walked away without answering. And I want to say that everything that I'm saying about the story in Francis Carroll's trial, there were witnesses that backed up pretty much everything Paul said, like okay. about him chasing the car down the street. There were two girls that testified, they were giggling schoolgirls, according mm. to the paper, testified that they saw him chasing the car down the street and get in. There was someone that saw Francis him get into Francis' car the day before. There was someone that saw them talking. So everything that... Right. Uh, part of the story that could be co corroborated by witnesses. There were witnesses that saw it all. Paul asked where Barbara was. Francis said she was out in the car. Then Francis yelled, I suppose you know this little bastard got my girl in trouble. Dr. Littlefield said, according to the prosecutor by Paul's testimony, I know the whole story now. Paul told me everything. From what I know about this, you belong in state prison. If there isn't a man in Oxford County who will send up the complaint, I will. Send Barbara up, I'll examine her. Francis Carroll followed Dr. Littlefield up to the bathroom. Paul heard Francis say, What the hell do you mean, Doc? The doctor said, You're not fit to live with decent people in a decent community. Paul heard a groan and ran into the room just in time to see Dr. Littlefield bent over. He'd been kicked in the crotch. Oh. The, auto the autopsy showed that that was true. He had bruises mm. on his 
groin area. Ugh. Paul hit Francis with a wrench that he carried, but the end was loose and flew off and down the stair. Investigators found it later, according to the prosecution. Francis got the wrench away from Paul and beat the doctor with it. Dr. Littlefield fell on the floor and Paul yelled, My God, you've killed him. Francis said, No, I'll bring him too. I have some whiskey in my car. He left the house and Paul helped Dr. Littlefield out. The doctor was barely able to walk and couldn't speak, only moan. Francis came running up the stairs with a gun. He hit the doctor above his right eye. Paul was sitting on the toilet seat while Francis Carroll beat the doctor with the butt of his gun. Francis ordered Paul to put a belt that had been hanging on the hook in the bathroom around Dr. Littlefield's neck, but Paul couldn't do it. So Francis did it. He used so much force that the flesh bulged and became black and blue. That was a quote. Again, Paul yelled, my God, you've killed him. Francis demanded that Paul give him all of Barbara's letters. He said, if I don't get all those letters, there'll be another murder. Paul gave him some, but not all of them. Then Francis told Paul to get rid of the body, but Paul wasn't able to lift it. The two men rolled the doctor's body in a blanket and carried it downstairs to the Buick and shoved it in the trunk, quote, in such a fashion that it took two men to remove it in North Arlington. While Francis was shoving the doctor's body in the trunk, he dropped a cigarette lighter, one that a former colleague of his identified at trial. Francis Carroll said he had an alibi for the night of Dr. Littlefield's murder. He was at the Legion Banquet from 6.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. But while he was there at 6.30, Francis was not present for his post-roll call at 7 p.m. Sheriff Fernando Francis, or as he's called, F.F. Francis, saw Francis Carroll on the street about 10 p.m. that night and testified that his deputy had been drinking. When Paul Dwyer was on trial, he was having a conference in the judge's chambers with his lawyer. Paul told his lawyer everything that had happened the night of the judge's murder. The guard at the door just happened to be Francis Carroll. Hmm. Justice George Emery had given strict instructions that no one talked to the defendant but his lawyer, E. Walker Abbott, or Paul McCormick, he had his two lawyers. But later, another deputy sheriff, Sidney Verrill, found Francis in Paul's cell talking to him. And he said something like, which I don't have in here, but Sidney Verrill said something like, the judge said, you know, no one's supposed to be talking to the defendant. And Francis Carroll said, oh, that doesn't count for us. And uh, Sidney Verrill said, I think it especially counts for us. Paul testified that Francis said to him, I heard every word you said to Abbott. You tell Abbott it wasn't true. I'll put a bullet through your heart and swear you tried to escape. And that was right before Paul pleaded guilty. Oh, geez. When Paul got to prison, he wrote the letter to Francis saying that he was going to tell the truth. Francis left for Thomaston prison right after he got the letter, like immediately. Prosecutor Ingalls told the jury, it is 100 miles, and he drove that 100 miles at an average speed of 68 miles per hour. Warden Walsh was elsewhere when Carol arrived. When the warden finally did come up to them, Carol was sitting just as close to Dwyer as he could, talking to him. When Sheriff Francis arrested Francis Carroll, and that was in April, I think, he said, come to the cell room, Carroll. I want to talk to you. You're under arrest for sexual relations with your daughter. Francis Carroll answered, my God, Sheriff, you don't think I killed Doc Littlefield, do you? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> also brought up at trial was an expert witness who said the pattern on the grip of Francis Carroll's gun matched the wounds on the doctor's scalp. Even though the trial was about the death of Dr. James Littlefield, the death of Lydia Littlefield was also explained by Paul Dwyer. At first, he didn't want to testify about it because he would be implicating himself, he told the judge. But the judge told him to answer the questions. The part about him telling Lydia about the hit-and-run accident was true, as was the trip to Boston and Concord, etc. But Paul testified that he confessed to Lydia that her husband was dead uh, somewhere outside of Boston. 
right before they came back to Maine. I don't think he told her that James was in the trunk of the car that they were driving around and with. They drove back to Maine and pulled up in front of Francis Carroll's house about midnight Thursday night. Just as they pulled up, Francis Carroll was coming out of his house and got into his car to drive away. Paul and Lydia followed him and pulled alongside him. Lydia started to get out of the car to confront Francis, but Francis got out of his car at the same time. Paul Dwyer testified that somebody there had a gun. He wasn't sure who, either Lydia or Francis, hmm. uh, but it ended up in Francis's hands. Francis hit Lydia over the head with it, and she slumped back into the car. Then Francis got into the back seat and made Paul drive to Turkey Hill at gunpoint. And I'm not really sure. I guess Turkey it's Hill a New Gloucester. Be, yeah, which is where they they left the bananas. Then Paul testified. Francis Carroll strangled Mrs. Littlefield with his hands. Maybe Paul wasn't sure because he couldn't watch. He said he turned his head away. Paul testified that he blanked out for a while after that, but he knew he drove off with Lydia on the seat beside him. And Francis Carroll must have gotten out and ran off or something. I don't know. There was a witness who testified she saw a frail young man and a sick or drunk older woman passed out with her head on his shoulder drive by in the early hours of Friday morning. The people that testified that <laughs> this couple there's a picture of them they look like like just typical 19 you know <laughs> depression era the guy is really skinny with glasses and the woman is like kind of chubby they're like mom pa kettle there are other witnesses at the trial who contradicted francis carroll's alibi after about two weeks of trial francis carroll was convicted of the murder of, of dr james littlefield and sentenced to hard labor for his natural life so now two men were in prison for killing Dr. Littlefield, and according to both the stories, if one did it, the other was innocent. Paul Dwyer expected to be released, but it's not that simple, apparently. Francis Carroll was a bit luckier. He was granted a hearing for a new trial based on new expert witnesses and testimony from witnesses about prosecutorial misconduct, and this was 12 years later, 1950. He fought it the whole time. He was constantly filing motions. Superior Court Justice Albert Beliveau granted Francis Carroll a writ of habeas corpus on September 20th, 1950, and he was released. Francis tried to sue the state for compensation, and there are literally hundreds of articles about it over the years. Wow. But he was unsuccessful. He died in 1956 of natural causes, I think heart uh, problems. And in his trial, whatever his name, Verrill, that other deputy who was a friend of his, testified in Francis Carroll's defense and said that like a lot of the stuff was, his words were twisted or something. And then there was other stuff that they said the prosecutors made evidence up and stuff. But it seems like a lot of the evidence was backed up by witnesses a lot of the testimony was so I, right. I didn't really want to get too much in the weeds on that but uh so he got out in 1950 francis carroll paul dwyer remained in prison until 1959 despite Jesus. numerous numerous efforts to get him released so he was in for like 20 years overturned. yes even the ACLU took up his case. Jeez. Finally, the state just paroled him, and he was 40 when he got out. No apology or no explanation. And the reason the state finally paroled him is that the case, the ACLU took up the case, and it was going to go to the main Supreme Court, and it looked like they were going to rule in his favor, so he was paroled. But it kind of sucks. I mean, he was in there for a long time. Jesus. Paul moved around, first back to his hometown, where he married and divorced and moved around New England. I tried to find his obituary, but you would be surprised, or maybe how many not. How Paul many? Twyers there are? Yes, yeah. yes. 
Um, I'm assuming he's dead or he's 101 years old. And by the way, no one was ever tried for the murder of poor Lydia Littlefield. Mm. When I was um, a city hall reporter in Manchester, New Hampshire, in the mid-80s, there was uh, Paul Dwyer, who was an alderman. And- Ooh. Was he old? Yeah, yeah. He would have been, I don't know exactly, but probably late 60s. Did he have an upturned nose and was he pallid? No, he was kind of a big bluff guy. I think that Paul was telling the truth. Yes. His, his first story was so bizarre. And then when Francis um, Carroll went on trial and the story came out, then it kind of ma- everything kind of made sense. Right. Right. If you were going to believe Paul did it, you would have to believe that he just, like, psychopathically killed Dr. Littlefield to rob him, which is possible. But the whole, like, driving around with the bodies and going to get Mrs. Littlefield and stuff just seems to, like, just totally overcome. And that's it. kind of weird anyway. Right. I mean, there's a lot written about it. And well, Francis Carroll was a, a fucking asshole. Right. And and my feeling is, like, the driving around with the bodies, like, Francis Carroll's like, okay, you have to take the fall for this. And the kid was scared shitless to yes. do it. And that's yeah. why he spent all that he time apparently, driving around. And he threatened... The, this is the way I looked at it. First of all, he was a he was a deputy sheriff, and he had a lot of power, at least especially in the eyes of this eighteen year old kid. Not only threatened Paul, but he threatened Paul's mother. He said he was going to kill his mother, and you know he had the means to do right. stuff like that. He had a right. gun. He was a he was a cop. Oh, and so Barbara never testified because one of the attorneys said she was too moronic. To- <laughs> and there's all these pictures of her, especially the Daily News. There's two picture- different days. They have pictures of her in a bathing suit. Why, I don't know. You'll have to send um, me some of those to put on the website. The mother testified, but all she did was like back up her husband's story. But I don't know why they didn't have Barbara testify, but I don't think she would have. I think they figured she wouldn't be much help because right. she probably would have not said anything. And I also think one of the reasons Paul changed his original story, even though he didn't name the girl in the first story, he didn't want Barbara to be pulled into it at all. He didn't want her to, because he asked one of the cops, he's like, you're right. not going to tell them the name of the girl he was saying that about. And the cop's like, no, that probably won't come up. And he's like, well, I'm afraid that she's going to be dragged. Her name's, her reputation's going right. to get ruined. Well, and, all and the stuff. other thing, know, even now. Well, the other thing too is he probably didn't want her dragged in because then the story could have unraveled and then Francis Carroll would kill him. Or kill his mother yeah, or true. something if if they began to suspect the story. And it sounds like Francis said, oh, I, don't worry, I'm a cop. Uh, I'll get you out right, of it. Right, Which um, he had no intention of doing. No, he didn't He care. wanted the kid to... It's funny, too. They, they kept calling him... They called him stocky, rotund, round-faced. <laughs> they had all these names. It's so funny to read the writing, but... Well, yeah, it was a real... I didn't know... Where did I you hear... This, where did you... I think it was Joe Owen again. Oh, jeez. And I didn't know much about it even then. I, I just had saved a um, clipping because I looked up a story about it after I read about it. And it was like the 50th anniversary. Someone wrote a story. Well, so 1987. And that was a stupid story. It was, I think it was in the Bangor Daily News. The, mm-hmm. the way it was written annoyed me because they said something. They called Barbara, the daughter, pert, which I don't like the word pert anyway. No, but it also has kind of a word. connotation that 
she's cute and stuff, which is kind of gross because her father was sexually assaulting right. her. Right. And he probably was sexually assaulting his other children. Right. And also her mother, Barbara was 18. Her mother was 36, I read it once. So mm. the mother was a very young wife. And I can't remember how old. I think he Although was Although people years got older. married younger back then. Yes, as a matter of fact, in one of the newspapers I was looking at, they had a photograph of, they had like this, uh, I think it was the Daily News. A lot of times they had like these pages that were montages of photographs and from around the country. And one of them was a, a young woman. You couldn't really tell how old she was. She looked like a farm girl type. She was doing washing. And that said 12-year-old mom. She had gotten married when she <laughs> was 10 to a 28-year-old guy. And she had a mom when she she had a baby when she was eleven, and they said uh, she's very proud to be a mom. At the blah blah blah, and I'm like, uh, okay, that this is disgusting, even for 1937. Yeah. And of course, there are pictures of the Dion Quintuplets, yeah, um, and a bunch of them. It just it was such a bizarre time. It was right before. It's just weird reading like all these different headlines when you know what's coming, yes. like about Hitler and yes. about stuff going on. It's just weird. Yeah. Like there's a picture of Hitler dancing with some woman at some Oktoberfest thing. And I was like, ugh, little do they know. Yeah. But anyway, but it was, I thought that was a very interesting story. And it's funny because I didn't know much about it. And And it was nationwide news, especially once the incest thing came, once uh, Francis Carroll, but even when when they found Paul and they found the um, bodies, because it was in New Jersey, it made a lot of the papers. Yeah. It was kind of cool. Yeah. And and that twist. I know. (laughs) See, I didn't want to say anything. I don't like it when you tell someone there's a twist because then they'll be looking for the twist. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyways, so it's your turn for the I yes NNW. I, yes, I have a recommendation. <laughs> My NNW is not on something I just want to give a quick recommendation for, which is Trial Four on Netflix. I'm um three episodes into it and it's really good. Ooh. And I'll do an NNW next time okay. around on it. But my NNW Wait, wait, I want to do a quick thing. I just noticed, thanks to writer Dick Cass, who mentioned it on Facebook, there is a new season of The Great British Baking Show. So I was excited about that. So go on. I'm sorry. Uh, I hope you and Dick Cass both enjoy it. I made mom watch it with me. Did she like it? She was confused. I bet. Um, Yes, she was confused by the TV personalities that host it. Because they're British. From, uh, British people. So we don't know. And she them. asked me who they were, and I'm like, I don't know. They're just on the anyway, show. Anyway, whatever. First of all, yeah, I'm doing DB Cooper, which yeah. is. Why that reaction? I don't know. I didn't know there was anything. What's DB Cooper? I texted Cooper you on? about it. It's a, I know, it's, but I can't remember. It's a, doc, it's a documentary about DB Cooper that's the on. restaurant. The human being. As if I'd never heard of fucking D.B. Cooper. Come on. Okay, mm. go on. He's like the Maura Murray of the 70s. I know. And I say that sarcastically. Anyway, <laughs> on HBO Max, it's a documentary on D.B. Cooper. There's also a new two-part one on the History Channel, but apparently you have to pay. And as much as mm. I like the History Channel, I cannot imagine paying for episodes of History's Mysteries. But I will say, I scrolled through History's Mysteries, and they have D.B. Cooper, and they have all sorts of stuff. You know who they don't have? 
Maura Murray, right. They Maura don't have Maura Murray. Murray. Right. Who's as that, famous as Amelia? That is uh-huh. just an outrage. Anyway, and you'd have I'm to listen kidding. to our last episode to understand that word. <laughs> but in any case, so I'm doing my NNW on the HBO Max D.B. Cooper documentary. It's about an hour and a half long. It's by a British guy named, <laughs> named John... And I can't read his last name in my notes, the producer. And the reason I know he's British is because he asks questions during it and you can hear him. And I also read the credits at the end. I am initially taking away a half a point on my tea pouring. Remember I said... Uh, You said it was an automatic point. Can I finish my explanation? (laughs) If if our listeners remember... (laughs) A few episodes ago, I said, if they focus on someone pouring tea, steeping the tea, pouring the tea, the tea kettle whistling, whatever, it's an automatic point. This had none of that. But if someone had poured tea, they would have shown it. So I'm taking away half a point. And I say that because... What What does that... uh, Let me explain. Because they focused on, like, the tchotchkes and the china cabinet. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, When they're interviewing people. You could just tell. He was dying for somebody to fucking make a pot of tea so he could film the tea kettle going off and somebody fucking steeping. I know you don't, but this is I don't care about the tea, but I like tchotchkes. Okay, go on. I'm sorry. So you're taking half a point off. I'm taking half a point off for that. I'm making a note of that because you never keep track. I'm keeping track right now, but you can make a note too. So so we'll, so I'll be backed up. So reenactments, bad reenactments. I was initially going to take off half a point, but I changed my mind during the, during the documentary. And I'll tell you why. This documentary is interesting. I mean, there's not a lot out there about D.B. Cooper that people don't already know. But what this one does is focus on four people who could possibly be him Mm. and interviewing people around him and people who are sure that the the person they think is him is him they reminded me a little of the Maura Murray people in some ways some of them did the obsessive kind of thing they do have reenactments and at first I'm like do we really need reenactments but then one of the people they interview because they also interview the pilots of the plane and a stewardess, and for those of you who don't know, I guess I should say who D.B. Cooper is, he hijacked a plane in the Northwest in 1971. They landed, he asked for $200,000, they let the passengers off. He, the two pilots, and one of the stewardesses took off again, and he parachuted out um, over um, Western Oregon, never to be seen again, and became a myth greater than Maura Murray of, you know, what happened to him and all, who was he and all this kind of stuff. So at first I thought, mm-hmm. are these reenactments necessary? But then when the stewardess and the two pilots are talking about what happened and they the reenactment shows him doing that stuff and there and it really adds to what they're trying to explain because he Ooh. he opened a door in the back of the plane which is crazy. It can make the plane crash and all this. And you really had to kind of see it. So I didn't take anything away from reenactments. They're not bad, but sometimes they're just not. I felt 
at some points they were unnecessary, but they weren't obtrusive, and there were some points when they could have ruined some storytelling with reenactments, and they chose not to have any. So I thought that was good. Narrative cliches. There were none. There was no narrator. It moved along. There were, you know, the the words on the screen thing. I know there's a technical word for those. And I was thinking of it in light of I've been watching some shows, The Real Murders of Orange County, Buried in the Backyard, Killer Siblings, hmm. that are all made, I think, by the same production company. <laughs> and, yeah. and they have this uh, female narrator. You know, the gruesome crime was... Nobody had ever seen anything like it in this affluent cl- community, blah, blah, blah. And th- that really sticks out, that, that narrative cliche yeah. stuff really sticks out after you've watched documentaries that don't have it, and this did not have it, so not oh, taking okay. away any. Okay, racial gender obtuseness. No, as usual, there were nobody of other races, which, I, you know, it just the nature of the story... And one interesting thing is one of the suspects, and this this isn't really a spoiler, but um, just a little bit of one, is somebody who had a ch- changed genders after the hijacking hmm. and was a man when, if this person was D.B. Cooper, obviously was a man when the hijacking happened and then changed genders. And the way they do it, kind of unveil it on the show and stuff, is kind of natural and they don't make a you know fun of it or anything they treat it normally you know there was the opportunity that it could have been pretty ham-handed as far as that oh, part of the show okay. and they didn't so no no points nice. for that. lack of good visual the visuals were very good lots of oh wait i am taking away half a point um mm-hmm. and i'll tell you why there were a lot of good visuals there was a lot of good like late 60s early 70s stuff a lot of photos there were home movies one of the issues i had though i think sometimes whoever puts these i don't know whose choice it is the film editor the director who puts these together where they mix in home movie looking stuff or clips from movies from the time Mm. and you're never really sure am i seeing the people they're talking about with these home movies or am i like there was one woman who was eight when it happened and she thinks it was her uncle and her uncles went hunting and it shows these guys walking through the woods and it looks like it was filmed now and made to look old movie-ish old home movie-ish but then they show other home movies and it's not clear if it's her if it's her family, if it's other people, she was very blonde. And then at one point toward the end, it's weird. They show a little girl when she's talking who's very brunette. It was weird context. And it's like, why are they showing that? So there were good visuals, but I'm taking away half a point because it bugs me when they mix the visuals so much yes. that you don't know if you're looking at. They have to do something so you know if you're looking yeah, at the exactly. people they're talking about or not. You know, it's like they get too carried away. Like somebody will say, you know, I just felt this is a bad example and it wasn't in this documentary, but I'm just trying to think of something obvious. Oh, I just felt like I was on this gerbil wheel and they'll show like a gerbil running on the wheel. Yeah. And it's not that you think, oh, is that their gerbil? But it's like you don't have to show some some little cutesy movie thing for everything mm-hmm. that's going on. I'd rather see the real people, even if yeah. you have to show them. 
a few times. So that's half a point off. So next. Missing pieces. Yes, I'm taking half a point off for missing pieces. Oh, you haven't uh, taken any full points off yet. We may. There were some little things I felt like. I know the story pretty well, but I still felt there were some little things that could have been filled in. But one of the suspects, six months or eight months or something after the hijacking, did a similar hijacking using all the same the same type of note, the same type of all the same stuff. And there, these FBI guys are, yeah, and it was just so similar to D.B. Cooper. But on the other hand, the D.B. Cooper stuff had all been in the paper and everything. Mm, so yeah. I'm like, you have to tell us how much of, like, his note... And everything was in the paper. It wasn't like they were keeping things a big secret. Like, after it happened, the stewardess and the pilots are all there talking with this big press conference telling the press all about it and stuff. To me, if he was... The fact that he did everything like D.B. Cooper did doesn't mean he was necessarily D.B. Cooper. I mean, there were other things that makes them think this guy could have been... But it's like, were these things anybody could have found out? Especially this guy who was obsessed with the D.B. Cooper hijacking and talked about it all the time and read hmm. all the stories. So I so I took half a point away hmm. for, th- for that. Inaccuracies, anachronisms. No, there were none. Even the reenactments were faithful to what things would have looked like in 1971. Oh. And nice. it was, there were no like phrases people used that they wouldn't have used back then. You know, they didn't do a lot of talking in the reenactments. You know, it was just kind of showing what happened type of stuff. And since it was all people talking and giving their own perceptions of things and everything, even if people were inaccurate about things and nothing jumped out to me, it wouldn't have been the film that was doing it, you know. It would have been the people, so. Storytelling. The storytelling was fantastic. And it, it, good enough that I'd almost take away the half a point for the tea thing. But, yeah. um, but I'm not going to take away that half a point. And because what they did, because at first I'm like, gee, aren't they going to tell people, you know, D.B. Cooper? But what they, you know, what he did and everything, because they had like just a few sentences about it. Then they start, then they go like suspect one. But what they did was through the course of the documentary, they had the stewardess and the pilots talking about what happened. And they at first introduced for a few minutes, people talking about each of the four suspects. And then they went back and did longer things about each of the four suspects. And the interesting thing is you watch it, you watch the people talking and you say, that, yeah, that guy's got to be him. And then they show the next one and it's like, oh, that person's got to <laughs> be him. And so it builds up. And one neat thing at the end, and I again, I don't think I'm... I'm really spoiling it to say this, is, you know, I'm sure people who are familiar with him have seen that composite drawing, you know, and he's got, like, the shades and... That's what I always picture when people say it, is that composite drawing. Right, so anyway, like, one of the FBI guys sent the drawing to his mother, he doesn't say why, and she called him up and said, why are you sending me this drawing of you, or who did this drawing (laughs) of me? And he's like, that's not me, that's D.B. Cooper. And so at the end, like, they show the composite... And then they show pictures of the suspects. And then they show pictures of more people and more people and more people. Because this one guy who was, oh, he was one of the most, the recent, most recent FBI agent who got the stuff on it, I think, and is the one who closed the case. But anyway, he's like, ah, oh, there's all this stuff. There's got to be something in here. Or maybe it was somebody who did a freedom of information. I can't remember. But anyway, 
but most of the stuff in the file is people saying, yeah, that's my father, or that's my neighbor, or that's my uncle, and, like, with photos and sending in stuff. Yeah. And so it just keeps, <laughs> and so it gets more and more, so they're showing more and more pictures. And I'm thinking, even a picture of our dad in 1971. I know. Could have looked like D.B. Cooper. And I think one of the takeaways at the very end, how people can feel like they're so sure of something and it reminds me of, you know, kind of internet sleuths now who are so sure yeah. of their theory of something and everything. And all these people, and they all make good cases. Like these cases alone in a vacuum, you would say that person's relative or that person's ex-husband or whatever, that was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. But then you see the next case. And you're like, no, yep. wait, maybe that person. That's just like with the um, Golden State Killer. When you read the Michelle McNamara's book, there were so many people right. that seemed like they freaky. could be him. It's and a none of freaky. them were. Yeah. Anyway. But, and, and, this, and this does that very well, the way it builds that up. Again, I don't think it's a spoiler to tell people. They're not going to tell you at the end who D.B. Cooper Aww. is. And nobody knows for sure whether he lived or died or what happened. But even if you're not familiar with him, I think you'll find it a satisfying watch. But what's the next? Ooh, repetition. Nope, there's no bad repetition. They do a great job of of going through the four suspects and filtering things in. And there is, you know, what we do see in in documentaries where they show they'll show the same picture or the same video or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's in context and it doesn't feel like they're just going over the same ground. They're giving you new information when they do it. So nothing there. Okay. Freshness. Very fresh. For a case that I'm sure there's been many cheesy true crime docs, there's Histories Mysteries, which I'm not going to pay to watch. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very fresh approach, and it's not just, I feel like it's not just about D.B. Cooper, but it's about people and their certainty, that type of thing. And it's also just a look at, a great look at that time in history and the way things were then. Okay, good. Beating the drum. No drum beating whatsoever. None. Oh. They could have even the the what I my takeaway on the overarching theme how certain people are of things and how speculation leads to fact, you know, can be confused yeah. for fact and everything. That's my takeaway. And I feel like that's one of the things the director wanted to get at. But I think anybody who watched it is going to take away their own, have their own perspective and take away their own conclusion from it, which is good. There, There's no beating the drum on anything. Okay. So, so, so I would say that's I, an 8.5. Yes, that's what I had, 8.5. Yes. And, and I, it sounds like you strongly recommend it. I strongly it. recommend it. It's uh, Ooh, Even if you think... It. Right, even if you think that you are, it's like, oh, God, D.B. Cooper, you know, it's worth seeing. And the thing on perception, too, I want to say that it's a realization, you know, and we talk a lot about how eyewitness testimony can be wrong and um, yes. memory can be wrong and things can be filled in. I had, I probably talked to you about this before, but I had this kind of revelation I was at my college reunion. It was our 35th reunion, so two years ago. And mm -hmm. there was an incident with my boyfriend 
one year in college where his sister wanted his car keys and she knocked on the door and he made her go outside and threw it out the window because he didn't want to open the door because we were not clothed and busy 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 doing our homework but um and i would have sworn that that was the dorm i lived in when i you know it's not that i think about it all the time but when i look back if somebody had asked me i would have been a hundred percent sure it was the dorm i lived in that was on the quad at my college sophomore year i could picture it picture him throwing the key out the window all this kind of stuff and at my reunion Like, we're standing in front of the door, me and my friends, and I can't remember, and that incident didn't even come up, but all of a sudden I realized I wasn't dating him when I lived in that dorm. I was living in one of the more, it was the next year, and I was living in one of the more modern dorms up on the hill, and it's not that big a deal, but I would swear that if somebody had asked me, I would swear 100% I was in Carlin. It was in Carlin. That happened in Carlin which was the name of the dorm. And even now, like, because ever since then, I've replayed it in my mind and tried to picture it in the dorm I would have been in as a junior in college, and I cannot picture it in that dorm. so weird. It is weird, and it's like, wow, that, to me, was a lesson in how memory can, you know, and it's an easy thing to prove. I wasn't dating him when yeah. I was a sophomore. That's happened to me a couple of times. I can't think of anything specific, but there have been a couple of times that I could have sworn something and then something happens to prove that my memory is totally wrong. And it's it's really... Right. Well, and I thought about that the other day, too, because the property next to me, somebody bought it and they have the surveyor's sticks up. And... One of the ones, I thought one of the ones at the front of my property had been moved closer to my property. I was absolutely positive about it. I was absolutely sure because there's this tree like halfway down and I thought it was on their side of the tree, not my side of the tree, when it first went up. And I said, somebody move that damn stick. Somebody move that stick like two or three feet because I know I went out there when it first went up and looked. So I was poking around under the leaves there last week and the surveyor had dug up the original pipe in yeah. the ground. Yeah. And it was right where that was. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> nobody moved the stick. But I was so certain somebody moved the stick that I was going to complain to somebody about it. <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't. But anyway, it, it, that we have gotten a little away from D.B. Cooper. But I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's really well done. It's entertaining. The people are great. The interviews are fascinating. Oh, um, yeah. the, the people, he does linger. The camera does linger on things. <laughs> Tchotchkes. And some of the people will remind you of today's internet obsessives. There's one guy who lives in a trailer. I always think of the Pacific Northwest as kind of a it's still like pioneer yeah. region. You know, it's still full of people who aren't necessarily it means kind of like that too so people who are some a little fringy and um yeah there are definitely like there's one guy who's lives in a trailer he's actually not as nutty as he may seem but he lives in this trailer with all this like stuff up on the walls and it's funny it's on hbo max i and i think it's the same thing with an american uh, murder that we talked about in American Trad. I don't know why. I can't remember the name of that. But sometimes I feel like British directors can take, come 
here and take an American story that we think we know well and yeah. with their perspective you know that they've got a different it's always view. interesting to hear a different yes view. and tell I mean, it like i used i listen to the um when i'm up really early driving somewhere i'll listen to the the bbc news is on the you know public radio and it's interesting to hear you know american news stories that i've heard like um you know that are in the news and you hear the whatever the network's the mainstream media, I'm just mm -hmm. kidding, but the network's version and stuff, uh, you know, the American news perspective. And then you, to hear it from another, you know. Right. Uh, it's just weird, but it's good. Right. It's it, interesting. It's a different way. They look at it a different way. So anyway, that's my NNW. Thank you. And I'm I guess we should. watch it. Yes, you should. Maybe Definitely. mom will watch it with me. Hmm. She may enjoy it. I always have the captions on. I always, whenever you say you of watch Of course. Mom, we I... have to have the captions on. I have them on for myself, too. Well, I, just, I used to always have them on myself, it. yes. Mom used to be very resistant to it. And well, then now she's not. Yes, she's learning. But anyway, I mean, we should probably go since it's Sunday night and we both have to uh, work. Uh, I, uh, bleh, puke tomorrow. I know. I hate working so much. But, Me um, too. And I just want to say, not that anyone cares, but I did NaNoWriMo this November, which is National Novel Writing <laughs> Month. Well, you can laugh, but it's National Novel Writing Month, and the point is to write 50 I wrote 000. a novel. It's getting published next month. <laughs> What's I, your I, genre? I just sold the film rights to it. Fuck <laughs> you. So Film Fuck rights. you. But anyway, <laughs> can I just finish Netflix my little... Oh, go ahead. My Sorry. little... Yeah, you're taking the wind right out of my one <laughs> little win of, of okay, the past Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Year. My one triumph. My one... But the idea is that you write 50,000 words in the month. And they have a website. It's good. You know, you put your words in and it has a little graph that shows it and everything. And they say, and you'll have a completed novel. But as we all know, that 50,000 words is not a completed novel. It's like half of one in my book. And also words are just words. So my book is obviously not done. I had like 30 something thousand when I started. So it's like mm -hmm. 80. But it's it, it, one good thing is it was a habit builder. Yes. And, and I hope to finish, have a first draft by the end of the year. Yay. And I'm just telling people that, not that anybody even gives a shit, but just because I, I, it's something that happened that I feel I've accomplished something in this miserable That's year good. where I hate working for the man and everything i'm i haven't accomplished anything i've lost six pounds since april oh that's pretty good that's a good accomplishment <laughs> Ma mom started jenny craig in april and i tried i was like oh i'm gonna try noom and then i was like uh yeah, I, I don't, don't like need noom. to keep doing they're noom. too intrusive I can, I can do the same thing using my fitbit well guess what i lost set like seven pounds when i did noom and then i didn't then I've gained a pound. I've well, gone up and down all summer. As someone who pays for the Weight Watchers app, but hasn't really done it, and I've done Weight Watchers enough to know what I have to do, and I can do it. It's just hard. You get stuck in a thing. But I can guarantee you, even if you have paid the 140 or 150 or whatever yeah, bucks it is to do Noom, that you probably would have not 
gotten that far with it. But mom's lost 30 pounds in the same amount of time. That's because Jenny Craig gives you all the food. I know. If somebody were giving me, well, they don't well, give they don't you, she give has to it. buy it. To if all it. my food were here and prepared for me and I didn't have to make any decisions about what to eat, I would lose weight too. I'm not dim- diminishing what mom has done. I'm just saying that's the secret. If I were Oprah and had a fucking chef living in my house that made all my food and had all the money in the world to go buy fresh stuff, if I didn't live in a fucking food desert where a trip to the grocery store is a 90-minute round trip, you know, then you I would lose weight. You seem a little weight. defensive. I am defensive. I'm, I'm hangry. I'm but angry. let me say something. Okay. As Oprah said... You can have all that stuff, but you still have to do it. And she still obviously has issues. Yes, she does. So. And I and I'm not I'm not dissing Oprah because I I like her and I feel for her. But I'll tell you, it's fucking easier. It's just like people oh, say, Oh, money easier. money doesn't solve all your problems. Well, it sure as fuck makes them easier to solve, yeah, doesn't it? Does. it? Because the if I have money you have when you're rich are a lot less dire than the ones you have right. when you're poor. You- Yes, but exactly. we could go on all day about that. Yes, we and we could. should probably go because speaking of which, we have to work. I guess I have to okay. do a, a sh- show next time. It just I occurred know. to me. I know I should have a whole list so I can constantly work on them and not cram. Yeah, but, but I never it's, do. We've been very main centric lately. I know. And we'll, we'll see if that continues or not. I have no clue what I'm doing. I always have kind of a list, but then I'll like lose enthusiasm for something yes, before exactly. I get to it. We should probably um, okay. say goodnight, right? Good night. Thank thanks you, for, everybody. Thanks for listening. Okay. And, and it sounds like so far we're not having any internet issues either. That's good. Um, they're glued to the TV. There's something about Obama uh, that they're oh, watching. Oh, good, good. Hopefully it'll last and, for the length of our recording. Uh, but if they start getting bored and doing their Facebook searching and playing every video that everybody posts at top volume, mm-hmm. then yes, we might have I, an issue. I feel your pain. Our 88th. Uh, our 89th. So we have just an average of about. I heard you. Okay. Uh, I, the only reason I'm I said it inter- Okay, because the only reason I said it again, because after I said 89th, you said 88th again. So that's the only reason. Because I'm delayed okay. because of my internet issues. Okay. So that this, that's what happens with us because they must be on their uh, laptops again.